And um, this leads me on to my next question, and that is that the one thing, if I was to, in a very respectful way, um, compare the position of uh, women in the context of Indian culture, I think the one thing which is very clear is when we speak about God or Supreme Being, Nara and Krishna, we don't normally associate wealth with divinity. But what's very, very pronounced is that the closest object, the closest thing to the Supreme Being in the Indian culture is Lakshmi. Lakshmi Narayan. So, is this concept that wealth in the Vedic concept is the closest thing to God? It's the eternal associate of Narayan as I understand it. So does this mean that wealth is actually something which is sacred? And because wealth is sacred, therefore it needs to be treated with respect. And how do you manage wealth? What would your message be, given the fact that luxury or wealth is a sacred commodity in the Vedic principle or the Vedic way of life? What should our attitude be in managing our own wealth, in the wealth of others, and distributing that wealth? How is wealth actually sacred? Yeah. So, when it comes to wealth, it doesn't imply only money. Wealth is actually any possession that you get. Say, for example, a king gets a kingdom. Now, what is the attitude of a right, right attitude of a king? The right attitude of a king is that this is the property of the Lord. It's not my kingdom. This is Lord's kingdom. And I, as his representative, am taking care of it. Taking care of it. Taking care of whom? Not only just the land. All those who are in this, the citizens of the kingdom. The Sanskrit word for the king, for the citizens is praja. And the word praja comes from prakrishto rupenaja a special kind of children. The king thinks that all the citizens are his children, although not born from him, but they are his children. And therefore, just as the father takes care of his children, a king is meant to take care of his citizens. And it's all because he has put the Lord in. Therefore, wherever we are, starting from the kingdom all the way down to a family, the way to look at it is this house that is the house that I'm living in is actually the Lord's property. It's not mine. The Lord, it is His house where I am situated as a servant. My family is His family. They are his children, and I have the responsibility to take care of them as being situated in proper relationship. Similarly, when we are running a business, we should look at it that way. That those who are employed in my business, just as a king feels towards his citizens, the owner of a business should think of a feel that same way about his employees and so on. So this is how 
you know, the Vedas are giving us the perfect direction to create the perfect, perfect society. And that was the society that used to be in India. Ram Raj. We are familiar with the expression Ram Raj, the kingdom of Lord Ram. The, king, the, the essential criteria for Ram Raj is Lord Ramchandra. I mean, we cannot create a Ram Raj without Ramchandra. Right? Ram, Ram, Ram Raj means this Raj belongs to Lord Ram. And I am his representative and the leader is ruling that country with that understanding. Thank you very much. So, let's move on then, just um, in a parallel direction. We have now classified and accepted and spoken on that wealth is actually something which is very sacred. And let's now move on to the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is, I mean, I'm sure for many people here, uh, a source of life for me. It's something which I have, uh, in fact, it's my favorite book. I read it every single day. It's been at least 25 years, I've read it every single day. And I found that if there was one point that I could bring, take out of it, which helps me to cultivate an attitude towards managing wealth and how I go around acquiring wealth. Then that famous verse comes to mind. Karmanya, Vadikaraste. That you should act in a way where you are not attached to the results. So when I work, when I deal with my clients, when I deal with individuals, there is a purpose behind it. But the Gita is saying you should act for the benefit of, for example, like you mentioned, others, the states, the wider community. But you should carry out your activities in such a way that you're not attached to the results. How do we actually practically implement this principle that the Gita speaks about? Yeah, this particular verse from the second chapter is pointing out that Karmanne Bhati Kagaste Mamshadeshu You have Adhikar. You have your right or and responsibility to act, but not to the results. Now, why? First consideration is that if we become attached to the result of the action, if we become attached to the reaction of the action, then we become responsible to either enjoy or suffer the reaction. Whether it is enjoyment or suffering, it is the cause of a bondage in this material nature. That's where the instruction is that perform your duties without being attached. Now how is it possible? <coughs> it is possible only when we have the understanding that we are doing it, whatever we are doing is for the favor of Lord's pleasure. My responsibility towards Him, to, to, to please Him, and when we know that he is taking care of us in all respects, so why should you worry about the results? Because when I become attached to the result, 
then I am becoming the enjoyer of that action. But by offering that results of our action to him, I am freeing myself from the reaction. Now the, like how, as you are asking, how is it possible? An example can be given. The son is working for his father. When the son is working for his father, he knows it's his family business. As the business flourishes, he is going to benefit from that. Right? Therefore, he is not separately asking, well, I work for this month, where is the salary? Right? So, asking for the reactions is something like, you know, I'm functioning and asking for the salary at the end of the month. But when you're functioning in your father's business, do you ask for salary at the end of the month? Rather, your father gives you so much that you don't even have to worry about anything. Before you even ask for something, it is there for you. You have such a general, when you have such a generous father, do you have to separately ask him for anything? And as I say, like, uh, when the Business flourishes since it's a family business. <laughs> it is you also benefiting from that. So the, it is possible only when we recognize that we are acting for the sake of Lord's pleasure, and the Lord is there taking care of us in all respects. He's providing us for everything that we need. So why should we worry about you know? Oh, I have done this, so give me in return. Thank you, Swamiji. Um, it takes me now to a point which is linked to not aspiring for the results of your activity. And in fact, it's a point that Anilji shared with me when I had the fortune of being with him just last month. He quoted a verse from the Ramachitramas, and Anilji mentioned that Vidibhat. He said that you should just perform your duty. This is what he was saying to me, and I'm revealing this in public, and this is some secret insights from Anila Duwaji. He said, you should just perform your duty, and the results leave it to destiny. So now let's focus our attention on a few moments on karma. Now, in the Gita, what's interesting is, it's taking the word activity or duty, called it karma, and then it, does, it does something which is unprecedented in possibly all philosophies that have lived in mankind. It's joined duty to yoga, karmic. It's saying that you can perform your duty in a way that actually liberates you. It gives you freedom. So it links you to the Yes, yeah, so what is karma yoga? How does it differentiate from just ordinary duty or activity? Uh, you see, the word yoga means to be linked up to or connected. So in a in a real sense, yoga actually means the process to be connected to the Lord. Like any action is not karma yoga. Right? But when the action is performed for the sake of Lord's pleasure, then it becomes karma yoga. That is as you quoted that verse. Like, you act without expecting results from that. That means you are doing, you are 
doing it for the sake of the Lord, not for yourself. Then only it becomes a karma yoga. And the definition of karma yoga in the broader sense has been given as jat karusi jadasnasi, jat juhasi dadasi jat, jat tapushoshi kontea tat kurusha madar. Jat karusi, whatever you do, jat asnasi, whatever you eat, jat juhasi, whatever you perform in sacrifice, dadasi, whatever you put in charity, whatever austerity you perform, do it for me. Mat Arpanam, offer the results to me. So Karmandevadikara's thing eventually leads to this verse actually. To properly understand that, we have to understand this verse. That whatever we do, not only whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we give in charity, should be done for the sake of God's And then it becomes Karmandevadikara. Because we are doing it for His sake, for His pleasure. And that, that is actually developing the love for the Lord. And that love is the ultimate yoga It is through love that the relationships are established, relationships are developed. So to develop our relationship with the Lord, we have to develop our love for Him. And this is one of the ways to develop it, doing things for Him. By doing things for Him, we develop our love. And then it leads to the next platform, Jnana, understanding Him, who He is, and who am I in relation to Him? How can I develop my loving relationship with Him? And that ultimately situates us into that loving relationship, which is the ultimate goal, or as we said, Panchi Purusha. Thank you so much. So, my understanding now is that in comparison to just performing your duty, karma yoga is actually that activity which is performed with a spiritual center, with, for example, you quoted in the Gita, Krishna is asking himself to be the center of the activities, and you're working in, um, in relationship with everything that Krishna represents or that the Lord represents. So now I want to move on to my next point, and that is that where, for example, some individuals may not be ready or may not be so comfortable to dedicate themselves to a supreme being or God. From my understanding, there are a set of moralistic values, ethics, codes, conduct that are universal. And by following some of those principles, you can maximize, at least within that limitation, your ability to act in a righteous way, righteous activities for others. So what I would like you to share with me, and the floor here today, are what would you say are some of those ethics, some of those values that people should always bear in mind and not let go while they are performing their business or their financial services? What are those key conducts and values that the Gita, for example, shares with us? Well, I'll derive these, these points or these needs from today's discussion. So the first consideration should be that we should be concerned that our actions 
are generating reactions. And as we act, the reaction will be there. As you sow, so shall we reap. If I act in a wrong way, in simple words, like, uh, anyway, let's just leave it at that. If we act in a wrong way, I'm not going to the details of it. Like, you know, one can can't question himself what's right and wrong. And if he wants further clarification, he can ask you. I'm just a Brahmin, so I'll be teaching religious stuff. No, I'm saying you because you be So, because if I act in a wrong way, then I'll be responsible for that, and I'll end up suffering. So let's not create a future that can lead to suffering. So let's try our best to act in the right way. That is the first consideration. Then the second consideration is that this life is not the only time that I'm here. I will continue to be here. I'm not the body. The body will die at some point, but I will continue to be. So let me be aware of that fact that, that I will continue to be there. This is not the only time that I am here. Rather, this life is an opportunity to create a better future. This life is an opportunity to create a better life and preferably achieve the ultimate perfection, which is to become situated in a spiritual identity in the spiritual and the third consideration is that the Supreme Personality of Godhead is there. He is omnipotent and He is omniscient and He is omnipresent. He is there and on top of everything. <clears throat> he is situated in my heart. He is situated in everyone's heart. He is seeing us. He is watching us every moment. And he is our supreme well-wisher. So I don't have to worry about anything. I can simply depend upon him. Just like when I was a child, I didn't have any anxiety. Because my parents were there. I knew that they are there. And they are going to take care of me. Similarly, we should also recognize that I have a supreme father. Who is the supreme controller and who is the supreme powerful. And if I recognize that he is there taking care of me all the time, which he is doing, then I can become free from all anxiety. So let me become free from all anxiety just by depending upon him. Like whatever I got, let me be thankful to him for that. Like, you know, do we ever consider what's the price of a glass of water? And we may be concerned about so much, you know, wealth or accumulate wealth, accumulate money. But the water that is coming free to me, like what a wonderful arrangement has been made. Like the three-fourth of this planet is actually water. But that water we cannot drink or utilize. 
But the sun is making the water to evaporate, form the cloud, and come down in the form of rain, distilled water, and filling up all the water bodies. So much, you know, who made this arrangement? Now let us consider, did we ever have any scarcity of water so far? Not really. Now consider a billionaire or a trillionaire lost his way in the middle of a desert, right? is dying of thirst. How much will you pay for a glass of water? <laughs> Only say, take all my wealth. Please give me a glass of water. So that is the price of a glass of water. That's how we proceed. And it's come to free to us. How? Because he has given it to us. He made all that. My food. A seed falls on the ground, a tree comes out of that, then the fruits are there, my food. And then in the fruit, there are seeds. And those seeds fall on the ground, another tree comes up. In, those, in that tree, there are innumerable fruits. And innumerable possibilities of trees in innumerable seeds. Now tell me, who made that arrangement? Okay, what is the most precious thing for us? Oxygen. Now, did you ever thank him for <laughs> the oxygen that he supplied? Now, all the oxygen, like we are taking oxygen and giving out carbon dioxide. Now, if the process continued, the whole atmosphere would be filled up with carbon dioxide and they won't have any oxygen. Did it ever happen? Why not? The trees and plants are taking the Carbon dioxide and give it oxygen. Tell me who made this arrangement. So when, without even asking, when he made all these arrangements, why should we not surrender unto him? Why should we not depend upon him? And when we do that, we achieve that in perfection. That is very sense, actually. Um, so, Your Highness, um, we spoke about other people around you. And I want to bring to mind that very beautiful passage in the Gita where Krishna speaks about being present in the hearts of every living entity. And my understanding is, is that for those who cannot, at this point in life, accept, for whatever reason there is, conditioning, a, um, a form of surrender to a supreme being, there seems to be at least this notion in the Gita that one should consider other people as equally sacred. Because within their hearts, there is something which is very transcendental. And in that way, we should deal with each other in the same way that we would want to deal with ourselves. And also for those who believe in a supreme being or God, God. So I wanted to ask you, how do we, how do we utilize this concept in our day-to-day -day leading so that at least when we're trying to follow our ethics and our codes when we're dealing with each other, that we learn to respect each other in a way that there's more unity and as a result of that, more peace. Yeah. Okay. Often we hear people addressing each other as brothers. Do they really mean it? Do they really develop a real relationship? But when they have a common father, how do they feel? Similarly, to create that universal brotherhood, we have to 
can't find a common father. We have to find our common father. Yes. And there is a father from whom we all came. So let us recognize him and then only will be able to recognize that how everyone else are, is my brother and sister. And not only the human beings, then actually we develop our kind of compassionate and loving relationship with everyone. And that concept is there in the Vedas. Boshudha, the entire earth planet. That means all the living entities that are there, not only the human being, the animals, the birds, the reptiles, the insects, the worms, the trees and plants, they all are my relatives. Why? Because we have a common father. They all are spirits of And in our day-to-day -day action, we have to consider that how by helping others, we enrich ourselves. Mm -hmm. By hurting others, we hurt ourselves. Like there are two, po two possibilities that we have open to us. Either to exploit or to serve. Yes. When we try to exploit, then we are inviting miseries for ourselves. But when we serve, when we help, when we try to benefit others, then we enrich ourselves. And that is the real thing. Thank you. Um, I just want to quickly do a time check. A few minutes? Questions? Okay. So I'm just going to ask you all to just uh, think about some of your questions. And I'll give you literally two, three minutes while I ask my final question uh, to His Holiness. And I want to give you a few moments to think of your own questions. Um, your Holiness, today has been a very enlightening occasion, I think, for most of us here today. You very kindly outlined the difference between uh, the body and the soul, how from the perspective of something which is eternal, we can act in that capacity. While we are in the body, we can then experience our desires in a very controlled and moderate way, and we discussed about the four, or sorry, the five stages of life. And in doing so, what we need to do is, a few key points that you mentioned was the notion of charity, the more we give, the more we receive. We spoke about the notion of loka sangraha, or act in such a way for the benefit of others. You also mentioned about the need to focus upon money being something which is actually quite sacred, and treating other people's money like your own, and also that with great power comes great responsibility. And what you have constantly brought your um, responses to is that, and I may be wrong here, and I want you to clarify this for me, that the difficulty is that without working around a spiritual center, whether we call that Krishna, a supreme being, God, it's actually very difficult to put spirituality into action. And what I wanted to ask you is that for those who are not ready at this point, and I keep saying this because um, I want to elaborate on one particular point, and I'll do that now. For those who are not at this point ready to appreciate um, a being beyond us, 
When we carry ourselves out in our daily activities, whether it's in business or finance, how can we act in such a way that we can develop an awareness of things above us, beyond us? Like for those who are not ready. Yes. Well, <laughs> I would say first studying. Uh, yeah, well, the first consideration is to befriend them. Okay. Because when they have confidence in you, then they listen to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So. And try to, we have to try to instill that confidence mm -hmm. throughout our action. Yes. And then when they are open to listen to us, then we can guide them. And the way to guide them is information that they have. Like it's not that, you know, like we are kind of speaking something that is kept as a secret and not meant for anyone. So it's meant for everybody. And it is for their benefit that we want to distribute it. We want to make them aware of it. So the books are there. And make them read the books, guide them when they have difficulties in understanding. So that is how we have to bring them to the platform where they will be spontaneously willing to understand and accept. Okay, so we've quoted regularly from the Gita. And what's very apparent is that the Gita is one particular spiritual text of wisdom that hasn't been actually delivered by a saint, a guru, or some type of tradition, but actually God himself has spoken about the Gita. And unless I'm completely wrong here, I don't really know if there's any other tradition wherein God himself delivers a sermon. And we know in the Gita that Krishna refers to the same sermon that he delivered on the battlefields of Arjuna. He delivered to the, uh, the sun god at the, uh, uh, many, many of years ago. So it's something which is very ancient and old. In my personal life, I mean, I come from an extremely poor family, a very poor family. I remember when I first went to India, my father sent us on a, I was only about four, he sent us on a, a single ticket because there was no money to come back to, 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 to London. Obviously, uh, two months in India was enough for me. What did you do there? Two months in India was uh, far too much for me, and then my mother ended up selling her gold in order to get a return ticket back to this country. And so we've always come from a very poor, poor family. Yeah. And, and even now, actually, my, my family are extremely, I would, I would never say they're medium, I would say they're at the lower end. But what's very interesting is that having met you, uh, God, 1995, the one thing that I have applied in my own life is that if I really want to study and I want to understand about things beyond me, I had to study the Bhagavad Gita. And I would say that's probably the one text that has brought me to a position where at least I can now say with my hand on my heart that I try my very best to look after you know, 400 uh, people who at this point report into me globally. And what's even more interesting is that on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm very enthusiastically try my best to avoid the vices that the Bhagavad Gita speaks of. And I think it's actually very possible to do that. The problem is if you're not aware of those. So whether it's financial models, which I launch, 
whether it's the way I deal with my clients, there are certain things that I would not deal in. And in that way, I personally feel achieved. I don't think I need to um, influence others to believe that I feel achieved. I think it's something which is very personal to me, something which is very, inter very internal. And in this way, I hope to continue to carry out my life. And with people like yourself and others around me, like Anilji, who is, uh, you think we are scholars, he is a scholar, <laughs> trust me. And um, I think with people like yourself and the examples they have in this room, there's more of a chance of staying on that path, which is a very difficult path sometimes to follow. And on that note, I really wanted to, from bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for leading us through this journey on this topic. And at least for me and for people over here, enlightening us so that we can understand the synergy between spirituality, commerce, and finance. I thank you very much.